Welcome to the Set and Setting Podcast with Madison Margolin. As a journalist, Madison has spent years exploring the intersection of psychedelics, cannabis, and culture. This podcast brings together thought leaders from today's psychedelic renaissance to talk about the role of psychedelics in our inner and outer lives. You can support this podcast and find additional resources at BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Madison. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Set and Setting. Uh, I'm really excited to introduce our guest today, Rick Doblin, who is the founder of MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. That's the longest running um, psychedelic nonprofit, research nonprofit, um, which uh, Rick began in 1986, one year after MDMA. Um, the compound that MAPS is currently doing research on was uh, made criminal in 1985. So, there's a long history to kind of go over here, learning about what MAPS is doing with MDMA, um, about Rick's own sort of practices around spirituality, mm-hmm. relationship to psychedelics, etc. So without further ado, Rick, thank you so much for being here. Oh, great, Madison. I'm looking forward to our discussion. Yeah, me too. So let's just start with a little bit of the history is how did you get to founding maps kind of what was what inspired you so much to do this particular work well uh, let me say that i was just in berlin um about a month ago there was a big psychedelic conference in berlin called insight and you know we are trying to do mdma research in berlin and the conference organizers from the mind foundation um, arranged for um, an apartment for me and a couple other people from MAPS to stay in. And it turned out it was one block away from the memorial to the murdered Jews of Europe. Oh, wow. And I could see the memorial from the window of the apartment that we were in. Um, I also was able, because of that, to go uh, you know, wandering around the memorial at 3 a.m., uh, by myself and just getting a feel for it. And when I saw that, um, that where I was staying, it was it's it's like two blocks from the Brandenburg Gate, one block from this memorial. I just felt like how appropriate because this is really what's motivating me to do this work. Hmm. You know, this idea of um, understanding our commonality, but not just thinking about it, but feeling it, mm-hmm. and how that can change people in terms of their willingness to demonize others, to dehumanize others, to be racist or prejudiced or any number of those ways that we divide ourselves and also uh, to just trash the environment. So it was really a political decision for me at age 18, back in 1972, when I was uh, you know, a draft resistor for Vietnam, planning to go to jail. And my parents were like, well, <clears throat> you know, they, they supported that, but they said, you'll never be able to be a real professional because you'll be a felon. So you can't be a doctor or a lawyer or whatever. And I was like, well, I'll just have to pay that price. Um, And then when I started doing LSD and started feeling this sort of dissolving of the sense of who I was and asking these existential questions, um, I thought, man, this is what my bar mitzvah should have been. (laughs) That, you know, the ritual didn't have as much of a spiritual component as I had hoped it would. It didn't really mark a rite of passage. And when I first started doing LSD and mescaline, um, and psilocybin, it started that process, I thought, of really who am I, what's my purpose, where do I belong? And I was oriented towards uh, my parents um, were politically active, and they sort of trained me that these systems are really big, the world systems are really big, but often that is used by people to just do nothing, to think that, you know, I can't accomplish anything, it's too big, I'm just a little person. But they kind of trained me to do whatever little you can, even on these big pictures. And if everybody were to do that, then maybe there would be change. So when I first started um, doing LSD and I I got this sense that um, there was this uh, theory of change of how me as an individual, others, humanity as a group would be better off if we had more of this uh, spiritual unit of connectivity. Um, I thought, okay, this is it. I'm going to focus my life on this. And I was very unprepared, though. I wasn't emotionally mature. I you know, made the mistake of thinking that the more drugs you did, the faster you evolved. I underemphasized the whole integration process. And I, I basically got lost. And 
didn't know what to do. And I felt that I needed to get grounded and got into building things. And I did that for a whole decade, basically, of building houses and, and building things and trying to put out in the world what was in my mind and sort of the see the flaws in your thinking when you try to manifest something in the outer world. Um, and then 10 years after I dropped out, I always knew I was going to go back to school. I went back to college um, at New College in Florida. And my first semester was a month-long workshop at Esalen in September of um, 82. And that's where this woman, Debbie Harlow, came by and said, there's a new drug and it's called Adam. And it's this drug that helps you to feel love and feel connection and helps you to um, address your fears and talk better and be a better listener. And I, of course, uh, underestimated it and just thought, hey, I'm already in love and I, I'm a good listener. And, you know, I saw a group of people sitting in a circle doing MDMA, talking to each other. And I was like further dismissive. You know, you take a bunch of LSD, you can't really talk. And so here it was, people were talking, so they were, knew who they were, they knew where they were, they were making logical sense. So I just underestimated it. But I, I like to say I was stupid enough to underestimate it, but smart enough to buy some. <laughs> and um, and then I, I took it home and, and did it with my girlfriend and was just amazing how profound it was. How I really had dramatically underestimated it. But I had also been told, in addition to being called Adam as this tool for underground therapists, even though it was legal, that it was also leaking out into recreational settings under the name ecstasy. So I thought, aha, I learned about LSD after the backlash. Now I'm learning about MDMA before the backlash. So it's an incredible opportunity to get various people who might be open to trying it because it's legal and then have them be witnesses once the DEA eventually moved to criminalize MDMA. So that's what started getting me political. And then what got me into starting MAPS was the fact that we won the case. I mean, this was a DEA administrative law judge hearing. We had hearings in three different cities, loads of witnesses. It was a big, big deal. And the judge suggested, and these administrative law judges only suggest, they don't compel, they just recommend recommended that MDMA be in Schedule 3, where it would be available as a therapeutic drug. It would be illegal outside of that, but it would be a prescription drug in Schedule 3. And the administrator of the DEA, John Lawn, rejected the recommendation and did it in such a bogus way that we sued in the appeals court and won. Their justification was, wow. was really wrong. And then they come up with some new theory, and then we sued them again, and we won the second time. And then the third time they tried it, they figured out how to satisfy the courts and basically made it, there's no way to force the DEA to reschedule. It has to be through FDA. And so that's where in 85, you know, MDMA was criminalized while the hearings were still going on. But it was clear what was going to happen. Even if we won, it wouldn't matter. And so in 86, I started MAPS mm -hmm. as a nonprofit psychedelic pharma company that would also do public education. Great. And so just so the audience knows, and I, I feel like I talk about this all the time just in my psychedelic journalism, but, you know, baseline MAPS is in the third and final phase of FDA approved research looking at MDMA for PTSD, right? Is there anything yeah. else that you want to kind of add and establish where yeah. you're at with MAPS? Yeah, yeah. So in 35 years of MAPS, since 1986, we've raised $130 million in donations or grants basically 115 million in donations and 15 million in grants. We just got a $12.9 million grant from the state of Michigan for a marijuana PTSD study in veterans. Wow. So that's, that's going to be pretty exciting to do. It'll be the definitive study on cannabis for PTSD. But um, cannabis is really, for PTSD, is about controlling symptoms. And it's meant to be, for many people, a daily drug. It's not curative. It's not necessarily combined with therapy as contrasted to MDMA, which is only combined with therapy and is about getting at the core of the problems and trying to work through so people don't need daily medication. So where we're at right now, starting in 86, we had five protocols from Harvard, from UC San Francisco, University of New Mexico, Albuquerque, and elsewhere for MDMA all rejected by the FDA. And then that changed in 1992. 
And that's where FDA had a formal meeting and decided to reopen the door to psychedelic research. So the renaissance in psychedelic research now all over the world really stems from that FDA decision in 1992. And then Charlie Grobe and I got permission to go ahead with a phase one dose response safety study with MDMA. And we worked on that through the 90s. At the time when the rave movement was going global, you know, there was more stories about recreational use. And then the National Institute on Drug Abuse was trying to make a big deal about supposed MDMA neurotoxicity. And even to the extent of saying one dose permanent brain damage, major functional consequences. Nobody should ever research it. We just ban it and forget about it as if it never existed. Um, and so it was very difficult. And so Charlie Grobe thought that um, he wanted to switch to studying psilocybin. And Hefter research had just started in 94. So that started the work with psilocybin for end of life. And that got me back to then working with MDMA for PTSD. So that started in 2000 in Spain. Unfortunately, the Madrid Anti-Drug Authority shut the study down for political reasons because things were going well and they didn't want that. And the U.S. National Institute on Drug Abuse sent some of our some of their neurotoxicity researchers to Spain to uh, raise the fear of MDMA neurotoxicity because we're now starting to get into looking at therapeutic studies. So starting and then in 2000, I met Michael Midhofer. We started doing the efforts to start research in the United States. That took us 16 years to. 2016 for the end of phase two meeting. So that's 30 years from the time that MAP started to the end of phase two meeting with FDA. And then we spent 2017 negotiating how that design would be and all the other information that FDA would want for these two phase three studies and, and other information as well, like various toxicity studies and um, studies in pregnant rats and stuff, just to see various different things. Um, and then starting in 2018, we started our first phase three study and we finished it in October, 2020. And May 10th, 2021, we published the results in Nature Medicine and the results were better than we'd even hoped. In fact, they were so good that they met all the criteria for getting approval from the FDA on the basis of one phase three study instead of two. But the FDA rejected our proposal to do that. And shortly after that, they approved this Alzheimer's drug, which people may have heard about, on the basis of no successful phase three studies, a reinterpretation of the data about a subset of people and significant safety risks. And yet they approved that without even, as I said, one successful phase three study. And now that's a massive scandal for the FDA. Why did they do that? But what it means in practice is we do have to do the second phase three study. And we've just enrolled 57 of the 100 people in that study. And we think in May of 2022, we'll have what's called the interim analysis. That's when all 100 people have been enrolled and 60 people have reached the primary outcome measure. And we can take a sneak peek. Our, our data monitoring committee will take a sneak peek at the data unblinded. And the whole purpose is just to tell us if we need to add more subjects to the study to get statistical significance, which which I think is probably almost certainly going to be, no, we don't need to add anybody. That study will be done in October 2022. And then about a year later, we will, should have um, FDA and DEA approval for MDMA. Now, we also have to reschedule in the states. So half the states will automatically reschedule once DEA does. The other half, we have to do various things. In California, we have to pass a whole law through the state legislature and get it signed by the governor. Wow. So there's going to be a lot of work there. And what we're also doing now is starting in Europe. So we're working at, we've already negotiated with the European Medicines Agency. We're starting to work with the MHRA, which is the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency of England. And they're, they're actually trying to show that there are benefits from Brexit. And those benefits are that they might be able to go faster to approve MDMA and other drugs than the European Medicines Agency or even the FDA maybe. So we're trying to play on that. And we've just submitted um, on the 11th of October to have MDMA-assisted therapy declared uh, or be given what's called an innovation passport, which is like breakthrough therapy, which we have from FDA. And we're also working in Australia, Brazil, and elsewhere. Um, and the phase three that we're doing right now is two sites in Israel, two in Canada, and 11 uh, throughout the United States. Mm -hmm. And so 
we think with, with our phase two, three data from the second study, if the results look good, we should get approval in Israel, Canada, and the United States. Then we'll see what's up with England, then Europe, um, Australia, and Brazil might also go shortly after FDA or possibly even before. So our, our goal is mass mental health, which means global. And so we're in this process of um, globalization. <laughs> and also just so the audience understands, like when we talk about kind of um, making MDMA available, it's it's by prescription via a certain protocol where you're working with two therapists, right? Like you need it. It's yeah. not like just you can't go to the store yet and just buy MDMA. So they understand. Right, right. So, well, let me say that mass mental health is the goal. And there's two parallel strategies. One is drug development to make MDMA into a medicine where it's only available by prescription, only under direct supervision of trained therapists and covered by insurance. So that's the goal of that. But the other goal is drug policy reform, which, um, you know, you come from a family that (laughs) knows the importance of drug policy reform. And so what we want to do is make it so that there's two pathways uh, we're, I'm using the word licensed legalization. So it's not just like available under no regulations whatsoever, but you get a license to do the drug. You, you have to pass a little test. You know what it is, but it's no big deal. Ideally, you'd also take your first psychedelic experience under supervision in a clinic for free, paid for all the tax money by all the people that are buying you know, non-medical MDMA or other psychedelics. And then you would get a license to do it. And if you misbehave, you don't get punished for your state of consciousness. You get punished for your actions. And then you might lose your license for a little bit. And this will work with pure drugs, honest drug education, starting hopefully in grade school, you know, to replace the D.A.R.E. program, which is uh, not very effective and filled with falsehoods. And what we want is to embed in the culture knowledge about non-ordinary states of consciousness and also how people can respond successfully when experiences get really difficult. We make a big point of saying difficult is not the same as bad. Right. And one of the things that we're doing now that's so exciting for me is that we are doing a test project for 100 police in Denver Denver made mushrooms the lowest enforcement priority. And so we're training the police on what to do if they encounter people with difficult trips and how not to make it worse. And, you know, not to tranquilize them, not to arrest them, you know, bring in mental mental health professionals, um, various things. And if that goes well, we're going to have a contract to train around 3,000 first responders in Denver. So what we want to do is medicalize to be administered by trained therapists covered by insurance and then licensed legalization over time with harm reduction methods and treatment on demand to make it so that it's really accessible to to everybody for all different purposes and people can choose which way they want to go, do it on their own or, you know, go to um, clinics. And the, the clinics just, by the way, would be not an MDMA clinic. It would be a psychedelic therapy clinic. So the therapist would be cross-trained in ketamine and MDMA and psilocybin, 5-MeO-DMT, whatever else comes down and gets approved. And so I think that's the ultimate vision is six or 7,000 of these clinics just in the United States. And, and uh, I'll just say, when I, when I come up with that number, it's not just um, plucked out of the air. There's about 6,000 hospice centers in the United States. And so any town that's big enough to have a hospice center, which is sort of a new well, not all that new anymore, but it's it's a different approach to um, helping people die in the end of life without all the medical interventions and trying to do palliative care. So I think it's reasonable to say that we'll have around six or 7,000 of these psychedelic clinics. I've heard that there's already about 1,000 ketamine clinics in America. Yeah, and so, that's what I was going to say is the ketamine clinics are sort of providing a model to an extent of what you know, these psychedelic therapy clinics could look like that would include not just yeah. ketamine, but MDMA, psilocybin, you know, whatever else. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, going back, you had mentioned your experience, um, you know, with LSD and kind of seven, you know, in the seventies or so. And so yeah. when people think of the counterculture, they think of mm-hmm. classic psychedelics like, um, like psilocybin or LSD, um, you know, kind of what was the culture around MDMA 
um, kind of at the beginning of when people first started to become more aware of it in the 70s and early 80s. Um, was that really an extension of the counterculture that cropped up around, you know, Timothy Leary and Ram Dass and, you know, all of the characters then? Or was it really starting to become its own thing? And of course, we know how that went with rave culture in the 90s, but, you know, pre, I'll say pre-criminalization, so to speak, of MDMA. Yeah, well, there was a drug called MDA, which is more like an LSD-MDMA combination that was very popular in the 60s. And then it got criminalized in 1970 with the Controlled Substances Act. And the counterculture got crushed. And we ended up with Nixon and you know Leary was put in jail. And it just really was, um, the idealism had uh, sort of left the building, you could say. And it was really um, tragic, you know, at the extent of the backlash that not just you know, wiped out research in the U.S., but all over the world. And so it was uh, early 76, 77, 78, when MDMA became rediscovered and started being used in these underground psychedelic therapy sessions. But it wasn't, I'd say, the same way as it, psychedelics had been used in the counterculture, because that was, you know, Grateful Dead concerts and the acid tests and, you know, festivals and so the way that MDMA under the codename Adam became used was quietly indoors in small groups or individuals and out of the media and out of the attention of the police. And it's the most gentle of the psychedelics. There, there weren't a lot of panic reactions or, or things. And so it was used as a therapy tool and it wasn't thought of as, oh, yeah, this is going to make you drop out of society and go live on a farm and grow soybeans or, you know, that, that it wasn't going to be part of this exodus to the countryside or the full rejection of society. It was more about people um, struggling to sort of be in the society and, and having these emotional blocks and then trying to release them. And so it was in that context that it was used and then a fellow named Michael Kleeg um, was uh, using it and he thought, ah, oh, this is a great drug. You know, more people should have it. I could make a bunch of money. And he turned it into ecstasy. And so then it became used in these public settings. You could say a little bit more like what was happening in the counterculture in the 60s at uh, the Star Club in Dallas and elsewhere. And that's what attracted the attention of the police. So um, the first article that was ever really... Um, written in mainstream media about MDMA was early 1985 when, when we had started these hearings and it was in Newsweek and they quote a fellow named Frank Sapienza from the DEA. And he said, we had no idea that this drug was being used by therapists. They just thought of it as ecstasy party drug. And so we took them completely by surprise and that's what threw them off track. And then we had Harvard Medical School psychiatrists and experts, psychiatrists and patients and all these people coming to testify about the value. And we had Roman Catholic monks and Rabbi Zalman Schachter talking about MDMA being like the Sabbath. Um, MDMA being something that uh, a monk can spend his whole life trying to reach this awakened attitude that MDMA can give you. So we were sort of contradicting the narrative of these are party drugs, these are countercultural drugs. And that's what caused the DEA to freak out. And so that's where they did this emergency scheduling in 85 on the dubious basis that this was a neurotoxic drug. And ironically, they were in such a rush to criminalize that they didn't realize or didn't pay attention that they didn't have the authority to do that. So the first move to criminalize MDMA was illegal. And all those people that got busted in the first year had to be let go. Wow. And it was just, you know, the zeal, but that's what, and it was Nancy Reagan just saying no and the escalation of the drug war. And so, you know, I would say that it was, um, MDMA really revitalized the underground psychedelic therapy community. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I kind of want to look at that for a second. And, you know, you mentioned all the people, including uh, Reb Zalman Schechter, who kind of made commentary on MDMA. And, you know, people right now, you know, we can go over, A, like MDMA really is kind of this therapeutic wonder drug in a way. You know, you're, you with MAPS, you've mentioned 
you know, whereas cannabis can treat the symptoms of PTSD, MDMA can really get to the core of of what is traumatizing a person and, and keeping them in that state. You know, and I know that it's been used in couples therapy and for other sorts of other types of therapy. And at the same time, it can be used or, you know, at least for me personally, and I'm sure for others, it it has a spiritual component as well. Um, So can we talk a little bit about the relationship between MDMA um, being used therapeutically, but also why its therapeutic potential could engender other other sort of spiritual states? Yeah, we can. Um, Well, Let's start by saying that in the work with LSD and psilocybin in the 50s and 60s, a lot of it was just mechanism of action, how do these drugs work, but a lot of it was therapeutically oriented, and that tended to cluster around LSD for alcohol use disorder and heroin addiction, and also LSD for people with anxiety about uh, end-of-life issues, about dying. And what was noticed at that time was that um, well, 1962 was the Good Friday experiment, and that was done at Harvard by um, Timothy Leary's uh, graduate student, uh, Walter Pankey. And that looked at the role that um, psilocybin could play in promoting a mystical experience. And there was a questionnaire, the mystical experience questionnaire that was developed then. And that was used in other subsequent psychedelic research. And what was identified was that the depth of the mystical experience is correlated with therapeutic outcomes when it comes to psilocybin and LSD. Then over the last 20 plus years that has seen the resurgence of psilocybin research at Hopkins and NYU elsewhere all over the world now, there's been a similar finding that this depth of the mystical experience correlates well with therapeutic outcomes and not just um, but for not just alcoholism or end of life related anxiety, but those things as well, but also um, obsessive compulsive disorder, nicotine addiction, cocaine addiction, other things. Now with MDMA, people score remarkably high on this mystical experience questionnaire, not as high as they would score with psilocybin or LSD, but pretty high. And one third of our subjects in an early in our phase two actually had above this cutoff point for a mystical experience enough so that we could do the similar correlation and we found that there is no correlation between the depth of the mystical experience with mdma and therapeutic outcomes and i think there's one major reason why i think that that is the case um that ptsd is is there's two kinds, you could say. One kind is stuff that happened to you. And then the other is multi-generational trauma. You know, the, the, we work with Rachel Yehuda, who's a researcher at the Bronx VA at Mount Sinai. And she's done studies with Holocaust survivors and their children and identified an epigenetic mechanism by which um, trauma can be passed down from the generation. So it's, it's not that the genes are changed, it's what turns the genes on and off. Because mm-hmm. genes would take a lot longer time frame to change, but there is this. So what we find is that when you have trauma, it's important to revisit the trauma and work through the emotions that were too overwhelming at the time. And so it requires sort of being grounded in your biography and in yourself. Um, and I think sometimes people do have spiritual experiences, um, which is pretty amazing. I'll just share that we had this... Um, I was about a month ago or so, I was in San Francisco for meetings with donors and meetings with MAP staff. And by incredible coincidence, we stayed at the home uh, at an Airbnb. And it turned out the owner of the Airbnb was a subject in our study. It's just amazing. We've only treated about 20 people in San Francisco. And here we end up at this home. And, and she described her first MDMA experience as very mystical, um, you know, floating in space feeling the whole history of the evolution of the universe and feeling like um, she had a lot of suicides in her family and terrible, terrible family history. But she kind of identified with this force of the universe as why she was still alive and everybody was else was dead. That this kind of being in space, connecting with this universal energy is what really helped her to feel why she's alive. But subsequent sessions really did go through a lot of the trauma and helped her work through that. So it's not to say that mystical experiences don't happen, but that we don't think that they're correlated with therapeutic outcome. And 
surprisingly, with all the LSD and ayahuasca and psilocybin and mescaline and other drugs that I've done, the most mystical experience of my life was under the influence of MDMA. Can you describe and, that? Yeah, this was um, back in 1985. Um, I'd been um, getting to know Brother David Steindelrost, who was a Roman Catholic monk. For a while, he was at uh, the Camaldolese uh, Monastery right near Esalen. And he came and taught this class in 82 for a few days at Esalen. Um, and then later I ended up um, giving him MDMA, which he did inside the monastery and found that it helped him to meditate. Um, it, yeah, it was, it was pretty amazing. So in 1985, I'm thinking, um, why would somebody want to be celibate? Why would somebody want to be a monk? What's, what's the point of that? And also, I was just starting to get more involved in sort of surfacing and challenging the DEA. And so I decided that I would take MDMA by myself um, at a campsite that I had that was right at the base of the, the mountains near Big Sur, right in front of the Pacific Ocean. And so there was a bunch of rocks, big, big, big boulders in front um, in the water. So I had a spot that the, the high tide would go around me, but it wouldn't get me. I had this very little narrow perch on safety and dryness with the roaring ocean out there. And, and I did this all night by myself. I've done a lot of MDMA by myself um, and also with other people. So I felt comfortable doing it on my own. And for a while I was watching this tree and thinking the tree is the DEA looking at me and how do I stay safe? And I had the sense that the DEA is always looking for what's hidden under the rock. That if I'm out front about what I'm doing, that'll sort of throw them off balance and that will engage their attention. So. I kind of made my peace with um, being an activist, you know, basically saying that um, that was going to make me safer rather than less safe. Um, and then I started thinking about Brother David and this uh, the idea of celibacy and w what he was going for. But at one point, I, um, I just got in touch with the immensity of the universe. So, you know, the, the stars were incredible, Big Sur. The stars just incredible and you know the roaring of the ocean and i was just like cuddled up against you could say the back of the mountain the you know the base of this mountain and i was just like this is such an amazing universe and i felt like i was um dissipating i was like blending with this whole big universe i was a part of this enormous thing and after a while i realized that somehow or other i was still there you know, I know that the earth is spinning thousands of miles an hour, you know, we're, and I thought, why am I here? I mean, why haven't I just, you know, flittered out off to space? And that's where I had this idea that gravity was holding me there and that gravity was a force of love. And I had this image of being um, cradled in the arms of gravity. And it was as warm and as rich as a lover, you know, as a human person. It was just that same depth of emotion towards gravity woven into the fabric of the universe, holding things together. And I thought this is, um, this is what the monks are trying to do. If you don't have a particular relationship with a particular person, you try to develop this kind of loving connection with the universe itself. And I thought, okay, I figured that out. Now I don't have to be celibate. <laughs> now I can go out and find love and romance. And But it was this sense of being cradled in the arms of gravity. And I had no um, relationship at the time. Um, but it cured me of a certain depth of loneliness that I had had before. Because I just felt like woven into the universe. I'm connected to this love. It runs through my body, runs through everything. So for me, that was, my ego was kind of intact as I had these realizations, but it was the depth of feeling towards this universal force hmm. that has stayed with me ever since. Wow. I really, really love that story. Um, you know, I feel like being cradled in gravity, it's sort of also like, what is gravity, right? Like gravity is the thing that kind of roots you in mm -hmm. like the presence of just like being down here on earth and like the here and now and like to reference you know we're on the be here now network you know to reference yeah. kind of Ram Dass's 
teachings and the philosophy of the guru named Kurli Baba, like so much of it is not, you know, what I love about MDMA um, as compared to the other psychedelics is that, you know, with, with acid or, or mushrooms, for instance, like you, it's a little bit, um, you can get a little bit heady, you know, you can get a little bit out of body, um, you know, in the cosmos or whatever. Whereas for me, MDMA kind of elicits such a somatic kind of grounded in body experience, um, which to me is really the definition of being here now, right? Like what is here and now, if you're not like rooted in your body, like rooted in gravity in this earth, right? And I, you know, I think that's, that's the here part of it. The now, I guess, is maybe making peace with, you know, that I think that's so much of like where, like, um, you know, where trauma and where therapy comes in is like, when you're focused on the now, it's kind of this accumulation of all of the moments and traumas and things that have happened in your life. And so, you know, maybe we can talk about again, a little bit like, why is, what is the mechanism of action that MDMA is so powerful as a trauma treatment drug. And I know you've explained it to me yeah. before, but for the sake of the yeah. audience understanding better, um, why don't we just okay. explain that quickly? Yeah. Yeah. Well, let, let's use the terminology that you were uh, using about the now. Mm-hmm. So when you have PTSD from past trauma, people have nightmares about it when they go to sleep. They're constantly triggered and they're reminded of things. Um that, that uh, bring back the feelings of the trauma. You could see somebody that looks like somebody that traumatized you and all of a sudden you're back in it. Or you can hear a sound that brings you back. So in a way, ironically, it's too much now. It's the past that has so been undigested that it crowds out the now and that you're sort of halfway here and halfway in the past. Or for many people... 20% here and 80% in the past or different amounts, but you're not really, the past is not the past. The past is, is here now and it colors everything. And you see that, you see the world through that, through past hurts and past trauma. Um, and, uh, you know, in a vivid way, I'll just say that um, the first time I ever worked with someone with PTSD was 1984. I talked about it in the TED talk, but um, this woman, Marcella, who's one of our, mean therapist now um she'd been um raped and beaten up and at different points in the therapy she was unclear was i the rapist or was i you know me trying to help her you know because again it's like you see through this filter of the past and it even happened like visually she could see his features superimposed on mine and you know it was only after a while that she could sort of see through that and then feel safe to, to move through her, her memories of the trauma. So what happens under MDMA is that these memories that are never really processed, that are always intruding, you can look at them in a way that's deeper than ever before, that has muted fear because uh, MDMA reduces activity in the amygdala, which is where we process fear. And you can let out the, the trapped, buried emotions that were too difficult to express when the trauma was happening because you had to Think about survival or getting through that. And so once you're able to do that, there's a process called fear extinction and memory reconsolidation. And so what the memory reconsolidation part means is that MDMA also increases connectivity between the amygdala and the hippocampus, which is where we put memories into long-term storage. And so you are able to um, bring these memories to the surface that were too panicky before release the emotions that's uh and then you no longer have this automatic fear connection so this is part of the fear extinction and you're able then through this memory reconsolidation when you reconsolidate the memory you're swapping out the emotion of fear with the emotion of i've been through it it's not happening right now and you're also putting that memory into the past so you're basically clearing out the now from all of the past that's intruding on the now. And then you're much better able to be here and now. Mm-hmm. And it's not like it makes the past traumas go away like they never happened. They're always a part of your story, but they don't have to be the dominant part of the story. Mm-hmm. They can be something that you've learned from, digested, and you're able to move on. So that's the successful outcome where it works. You know, we had uh, two thirds of our people that had 
severe chronic PTSD in our first phase three study no longer had PTSD at the two-month follow-up after the last uh, MDMA session. So you're able to really um, be a um, processor of these overwhelming emotions and place them in the past. And this um, oxytocin release that MDMA produces promotes a certain kind of self-love, self-acceptance, builds kind of trust with others, um, you know, it builds a willingness, a courage in a way to see other people mm-hmm. and to try instead of like shy away from them. And um, I remember you once and correct me if I'm wrong, you once said that MDMA is a good time. If you're under the influence of MDMA, it's also a good time to do yoga or to sort of stretch because oh you're more flexible. What what's what is that? What is that about? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I what I find in and many people, many people report this is that under the influence of MDMA, people become more limber hmm. and you can stretch an inch or two more than normal. Why and is that? I, I, well, why is um, a difficult question to answer? Um, but I think that there's a, um, meaning that I don't know the answer, mm-hmm. um, but I think it's part of this emotional relaxation that you're tense, you're, you're kind of musculature is sort of tense and you can relax more you have more emotional fluidity, more physical fluidity. And a lot of times, you know, when you take MDMA in a therapy setting, um, it takes about an hour for the full effects to be felt. And so what you can do during this hour is, uh, and what we do a lot of times is just stretch, do stretching exercises and talking to people and have them sort of get more limber. And I think that we underestimate this mind-body connection. So I think this muscle relaxation is part of the emotional relaxation. And, you know, sometimes um, we, we know how trauma is stored in the body. So Bessel van der Kolk, who wrote this book, The Body Keeps the Score, he's our principal investigator of our Boston site. And he actually said to us, uh, he wasn't involved in phase two, but he started with us in phase three. And he said, uh, for phase three, we shouldn't enroll people with complex PTSD and difficult attachments as a youngster, because those are the hardest people to treat. Hmm. And we said, yeah, we, we do know that those are the hardest people to treat, but we got some good data from people with complex PTSD from childhood from phase two. So we're going to continue to enroll them. And we have done so. And then what we've just showed in our first phase three study is the dissociative subtype, which is um, when you're traumatized, one of the solutions is to dissociate. You're not there. It's not really happening to you. Whatever's happening is so painful, you, you kind of go away in your mind. But then whenever you try to come back to it, you, you've kind of had this idea, it's overwhelming, I can't handle it. And, and people dissociate from other people, from their work and from their emotions. And what we showed is that people with complex PTSD with the dissociative subtype actually had more benefits on average than everybody else. Amazing. I think because of this oxytocin release, this sense of connection, this um, and this helping people to be in the here and now to where they can realize that these past traumas aren't happening at the moment. And once you can separate that out and you can kind of say, I survived. Mm-hmm. and now let me let out these emotions, then you're on a path to a healthier life. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I, I, again, I can sort of relate to that a little bit just in terms of like my own experiences with MDMA. Um, so I, I have a couple questions or two more questions really. And I know that we don't have a ton of time, so I, I'm just going to go for it. Number one is just in terms of who MAPS is really, you know, studying right now, like the demographics, you'd mentioned something about working with the VA. So I just wanted to yeah. have you explain that a little bit. Okay. Okay. So I like to say that we don't do science, we do political science. And what that means is that we have to, we do science, of course, we do scientific drug development research in the most rigorous ways possible as required by FDA and other regulatory agencies. But what we have to do is think about who are sympathetic patients to get over all the stigma. And so what most people have heard about our work has to do with veterans and veterans with PTSD. And that's why we have bipartisan support 
And we've been able to rise this above the partisan struggles and support for psychedelics is, is really bipartisan for psychedelic research, a lot because of the vets. But they're actually a minority of the people with PTSD. Most of the people, there's about 8 million people with PTSD. Most of the people with PTSD are women, mostly from domestic violence, childhood sexual abuse, adult rape and assault, and harassment, all sorts of things. But they don't get as much attention in the media. But roughly two-thirds of our subjects are women, one-third are men. And I'd say about 20%, 25% or something are um, war-related, combat-related PTSD. And the rest are all sorts of other causes. We, we've even had a sad story about uh, Columbine. You know, we've had some people that survived uh, massacres at school, school shootings, who then had PTSD from that, who then um, enrolled in our Boulder, Colorado study. Mm-hmm. So it, it's PTSD from any cause. That's what we learned in phase two with all these different studies that we did, is that it works regardless of the cause of PTSD. Including complex trauma as well. Complex Including PTSD. complex trauma. Got yeah. it. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just to add, it's three MDMA sessions, one month apart and 12 90 minute non-drug psychotherapy sessions. So that's another sort of differentiation between the sixties and the counterculture at the time they were sort of looking at one dose miracle cure. You know, you take this drug and you're enlightened and you're better forever. And so we're, we're beyond that now. And it's not one dose miracle cure. It's multiple doses with a lot of preparation, a lot of integration Mm-hmm. Um, some people need less than three sessions. Some people will need four or five sessions. But it's something that um, we really believe is very cost effective. And we're trying to train 25,000 therapists between now and the end of the decade mm-hmm. to deliver this at these roughly 6,000 psychedelic centers. Wow. Wow. Well, yeah, I, I just want to say thank you, by the way, for all the work that you're doing, you know, with MAPS. And it's just you know, MAPS right now, as not only is it just a research institution, but it's become such a cultural, you know, staple in the psychedelic space. And it's just snowballed, you know, everything kind of has gone from there. So, you know, the last question I wanted to ask is for you being the founder of this organization, you know, like, what is it that enables you to kind of get through through your day and to stay inspired and do your work? So do you have a spiritual practice or something that brings you into your own flow state or state of being here now? um, I would say, first off, it's the work itself is, you know, the change that I see in the world that's happening from the work itself keeps me doing it more and more. Also, I'm very concerned about not celebrating too soon. Mm -hmm. You know, we still are talking about two years before MDMA becomes approved as a treatment by FDA, Health Canada, Ministry of Health in Israel. So I know that uh, there's a great quote that was called, um, there's many a slip twixt the cup and the lip, meaning that uh, between, twixt is between. So you're you're going to drink something and you spill it all over yourself. You think you've got it done, you put your attention somewhere else and then you make a mess of it. And so I'm realizing we're not there yet. Things look great, roughly 400 plus for-profit psychedelic companies, global renaissance and psychedelic research, but... The hardest part is usually the final stages. Mm-hmm. So that's what. Now, I don't actually meditate because I was um, sort of, I'm, I guess I'm more of a social justice activist so that when I, I do relax my mind, I often, mainly I do it with the uh, marijuana, <laughs> um, which is, um, and actually we've changed our uh, employee manual. So we have our 140 people now at MAPS. And what we say is that it's, we don't do drug testing and you can do drugs at work if you want to, if it enhances your performance and your manager agrees. <laughs> and it's different for different people. So we call it smokable tasks. Right. But what, what I like to do is, um, you know, relax at the end of the day, smoke marijuana, and just let all the things that bubble up that I was moving too fast during the day to really take fully account of. Mm-hmm. And I also love to edit documents when I'm high and, you know, zone in on all these precise meanings of each word. So for me, what keeps me going is on the one hand, fear. So the fear of um, the world going crazy, you know, the fear of Trump coming back, the fear of authoritarianism, the fear of another Holocaust. And I just keep thinking, I've got so much freedom. I'm so privileged that I should use that freedom, not to just uh, goof off, but to try to make it so that other people have as much freedom. 
mm-hmm. and to try to help people deal with the dark sides of themselves, of the culture. And so it's, it's, um, it's been easy, actually, this whole time. So I'm 67 now. I had this idea when I was 18, so it was 49 years. And I just keep thinking how lucky I am that this idea that I had when I was 18 still makes sense almost 50 years later. <laughs> it's good. It's good foresight, definitely. I yeah, mean, yeah. to say the least. lucky. Well, I think... Yeah, and, yeah oh, other no. than also my own psychedelic experiences have, have made it. So when I you know, was doing MDMA and, and feeling what it could be done and hearing all these horror stories about one dose brain damage, neurotoxicity functional consequences, you know, shut down the research. I just knew intuitively that that was wrong from my own direct experiences. Mm-hmm. So that, that's been, I'd say, the most important anchor of all. Yeah. And hearing, you know, you, you talked about kind of doing acid a few years after your bar mitzvah and kind of yeah. ha- having that put you on your path and being, being told that story in retrospect, having learned what your path has become <laughs> the past 49 years, it's just a slip of share that... Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just, it's really beautiful and full circle. So I want to say thank you so much for joining. Um, if the audience wants to find out more about you, your work, I mean, MAPS is pretty Googleable, but is there any, is there anywhere that you would point them specifically? Yeah, maps.org to our website. And when we are looking to increase our base membership, because now there's more political opportunities for mm-hmm. like, like the town I'm in is called Belmont. Next town is Somerville and Cambridge is nearby. And both Somerville and Belmont have made plant psychedelics the lowest enforcement priority. Mm-hmm. And that's how, happening elsewhere. So now we're at the stage where it's not just about gathering resources and doing scientific data. It's also about really entering the political world and so we could use a lot more members to increase our base so that then we can have more um, capacity to help with political change. So I'd encourage people, we're trying to start the monthly donor program. We have over a thousand people with monthly donors. So I'd say maps.org and you'll learn all sorts of stuff. Great. Well, thank you so much. And um, we'll, we'll be in touch soon about more right. psychedelic news. Yeah. And terrific, Madison. And I'll just say, I said this before we started, but your billboard and uh, <laughs> Times Square was fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Talk soon. Okay. Okay.